we started getting these death threats every single day. So we had to bring in bomb sniffing dogs, personal security, and one night I heard something in my house and I heard the noise again. I go in my daughter's room, the lights are off and my daughter is dancing in the middle of the room. She said, look daddy, I'm dancing. <laughs> something stopped me. The spirit truly just said, look at your daughter. She's dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but the darkness isn't in her. You need to learn how to dance, son. And I changed my message that day, and I came to church and to talk about our responsibility and the choice we can make to dance in the darkness. Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, author of Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, coming up on The Janice Adams Show. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about, and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. It's not often I feature one guest across two episodes, but this week's interview with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III is one of those rare times. Senior pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ, the congregation once pastored by the Obama family's minister, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, he is author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. This week, part two, for troubled times indeed. Reverend Dr. Moss introduces us to 19-year-old Joseph Graves. At first hearing, the story is one we think we've heard before. Gangs, guns, turf, police indifference, lives stolen and strayed. In Otis Moss's telling, the story demands that we rethink what we think we know, not only about Joseph, but about our society, our priorities, ourselves, our possibilities. Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, the chapter entitled Redirect Your Rage, uh, How to Harness, Harness your, Your Power. And in this chapter, I tell the story of one of our beloved young people uh, was shot and killed in Chicago, just a couple of blocks away from the church. And what our response was as a community to this very painful and, and tragic murder. Joseph was killed on Friday night. Immediately, the church began to organize our team of ministers, deacons, youth mentors, and camp counselors, as well as internal and external security. We put out a call to all crisis intervention workers, counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists, and any member of the village willing to help redirect our young people, now crying out for justice, away from physical force as their means. We needed help to remind our youth that it would not honor Joseph to do another person harm, that it was in fact far more honorable to march for justice to help ensure that Joseph's younger brother could go on and make sure his mother did not weep alone. We were trying to lift up a more spiritual model of the warrior, not the Hollywood action figure version who gets angry, pulls out his gun, and takes fast retribution that seems simple, clean, satisfying. Bang, you're dead. Problem solved. We needed to give our youth a map and say, here, look, this is the person you will harm today, but all these people surrounding him will be affected by the damage you do just as Joseph's death 
wounded his family, his friends, and so many of us. To support our young people in choosing spiritual warfare, we organized peace circles, a practice borrowed from Native American and West African traditions. A peace circle is a safe space to express rage without judgment or fear of retribution. Out of the peace circles came the idea to raise money for a reward for information leading to an arrest. Some of our young people launched a Kickstarter campaign to gather donations. They helped spread the word across the internet. This gave anyone in the community who felt the need to act a chance to do something constructive. The campaign raised $12,000 in a few days, mostly from youth, as a reward for information leading to Joseph's killer. We also contacted our local district police, with whom we already had a very good relationship. Officers are invited regularly to the church to participate in community meetings. We make a practice of introducing officers to our neighborhood, our local organizations, and our young people. In the aftermath of Joseph's murder, members of our congregation who were police officers asked for permission from their commanders to be stationed as escorts for our youth when church let out. The police commander came to the church to offer his condolences personally. These gestures of recognition and respect made a big impression on Joseph's friends. After service, instead of a traditional benediction, we led our young people to the atrium of the church and gave them instructions to march three by three to the street where the killing occurred. Every young person was given two sets of flyers to hand out as we marched. One flyer asked those in the community to break the culture of silence. It described the reward for information useful to the investigation. The second read, we're safe, we're here, we're praying. As they marched, our young people spoke to neighbors along the way, asking them to contact the detectives if they had useful information. After the service, uh, the march on Sunday, many of Joseph's peers still wanted to do more. Talking on Instagram and texting among themselves, they decided to organize a prayer vigil. This was to be a public event held outside of the church at night, planned without the church leadership. When I heard about it, I was concerned. A public vigil was no secure church gathering. Anyone could show up. There would probably be someone who claimed to know the identity of the shooter and others who felt loyalty to whoever they believed the shooter had intended to hit. When those two groups of young people came together, full of suspicion and pain, I was afraid that the ideal of nonviolence we were lifting up might start to sound like weak and cowardly excuses, the very opposite of justice. And yet, while I disagreed with that judgment, I also sympathized. I had held that very view myself, Although I was raised by parents who celebrated and participated in nonviolent action inspired by and sometimes led by Dr. King, as a teenager, I had little patience for it. I was a full-on fan of Malcolm X, and I used the word fan on purpose. Fans come and go. Fandom is not lasting. Thoughtful relationship not a true meeting of the minds. It can grow into something more serious, but often it just burns away. As a fan, I was drawn to X's style as a speaker and inspired by his rejection of the last name passed on to him by a slave owner ancestor. He made me think for the first time about my own name, Otis Moss. How did I get this name, Moss? It did not come from Africa, of course. I had known that intellectually, but Malcolm X helped me voice my sense of outrage at the history we were forced to endure. I was drawn to his early vision of America as a nightmare, a vision that grew in the years that he was influenced by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the narrow nationalism of Nation of Islam. Malcolm X seemed to be an antidote to the weakness and humiliation suffered under white supremacy. And from that perspective, nonviolence looked like cowardice. I felt a strong wish to be a warrior and protector for my people, as Malcolm said, by any means necessary. I wanted to fight back. I bought that fanboy enthusiasm with me all the way to graduate school, where I took a course with Dr. Vincent Harding, a professor of religion and social transformation at the Isle School of Theology. He had worked with Dr. King and later served as a consultant to the documentary Eyes on the Prize. 
One day in his class, I began to speak out on the right of African-Americans to defend themselves, including the use of violence. I got up on my radical revolutionary soapbox and Professor Harding let me go on and on. Then he played the class a video clip of the Memphis March, the final action with which Dr. King was involved before his assassination. It was a protest to support sanitation workers, quote, garbage men in Memphis, who were demanding fair wages and carrying signs that read, I am a man. With this action, Dr. King was broadening the scope of the freedom movement, expanding it to acknowledge not just racial, but economic injustice in what was called the Poor People's Campaign. After Professor Harding showed the clip, he asked the class, what did you see? We saw people marching. No, he said. He showed the clip again. As we watched more carefully, we began to notice who was marching. The protesters included some small children, a person with one leg, elderly people. He said, Otis, when you take the perspective of using violence as a tactic, then the movement ceases to be democratic. Because in your revolution, the differently abled cannot participate. Children cannot participate. The elderly cannot participate. You are glorifying healthy men, putting everyone else on the sidelines. It was a philosophical idea, but it hit me in the gut. My fans' romanticism about self-defense had been revealed as a fantasy of strong men taking charge and leaving the rest to wait for rescue. It was a patriarchal, misogynist dream. For the first time, I saw that when you commit to any idea, you must ask, who does that idea exclude? Is there room in this vision of justice for Ubuntu, for agape love, for all of us created equal? With this realization, as I would later discover, I was still following in the footsteps of Malcolm X. His lifelong philosophical journey led to greater intellectual depth and political and spiritual transformation. As I learned more about the development of his thinking, I became not just a fan infatuated with his bold, unbending words, but a philosophical friend. He gave me a new appreciation of nonviolence as a tactic. You begin that reading, Joseph was killed on a Friday night. Tell us about Joseph. Joseph Graves was this wonderful young man who was deeply a part of our church community. He actually led our step team. Yeah, we had a step team at the church for young people. And he also was part of the dance team. He was also part of uh, the mime team. But he was also had these great relationships with young people in the community. Um, Joseph was, he was a church kid, was in college, and at the same time was Everybody loved him. You know, I mean, he was just like this popular kid, you know, in high school. And his younger brother was always trying to be be like him. So we called him Jojo. And anytime Jojo was leading something, you knew that it was going to be tight because he had this kind of military style framework when he would have young people do stuff, even though they're his peers. Uh, he's like, look, you're not going to embarrass me up here in front of everybody at the church. So, <laughs> so this is how y'all going to do this. Y'all going to get this step right. We're going to roll right with this step. And that was, that was Jojo. That was, that was, you know, he's just a, just a wonderful human being. And Jojo was shot and killed uh, a few blocks away from, from our church. Uh, there was, from our understanding, there was some type of uh, altercation. He went to the store with some of his friends. There were some other young people there. They maybe crossed some particular boundaries. When I talking about boundaries, I'm talking about spatial boundaries that, you know, what are you doing in this particular neighborhood kind of boundaries? Um, because the micro, and I, you have to be real clear, the micro gang situation in Chicago is really the problem is that uh, Chicago in, uh, I think about 2000, they locked up all of the leadership that they considered to be that they were going to just do sweeps. And it left these younger lieutenants, 13, 14, 15 and whatnot, in charge. They, they didn't have interrupters. They didn't think through about how to engage in terms of reduction of violence. And that's one of the things that we've been involved in highly. 
And so here's Joseph with his friends and uh, someone raises questions about what are you doing here? And, uh, you know, from, from there, it gets a little bit fuzzy, but essentially they, someone shot into his car and, and he was, he was killed. And our young people were broken and livid, um, because we have a variety of, of young people, some who would you consider to be the regular church going kids and some who are like, look, uh, I just came off the street and I just want to be part of this ministry. Um, and some of our young people were like, we want to take matters into our own hands. And we had to, instead of saying, this is what you need to do, we had to sit down with them and walk through that pain. We know that you want to retaliate. And with the advent of social media, it makes this even more dangerous. You can easily have any bad actors say it was so-and-so who did this and all of a sudden it blows into a completely different range and so we did peace circles and peace circles were designed to be in a space where you can recognize your rage without judgment but then how do we take how you are experiencing and feeling and move that in a direction that can harness power for transformation and this was an incredibly painful thing for, you know, for our church. I mean, it just, when you have someone that is just that intricately involved uh, in things, and then the homegoing service was, I, um, and we've, we've had quite a few, you know, I hate doing those types of services. But what was powerful was to see the way the community came together. Uh, what was powerful was, the interrupters who were going into the neighborhood to make sure that nothing else was going to pop off. What was powerful was a blueprint of how we can create the systems to alleviate violence in our society, in our community and in our neighborhood. And I know that maybe many listeners have just heard rhetoric around Chicago, but there is a very almost simplistic blueprint to reduce violence that most cities never want to engage because it becomes so political. But if you hire interrupters, people who are, were once in the life who want to interrupt the violence, if you have the social workers, if you bring in faith community, people who are trusted partners, we can reduce the violence. But nine times out of 10, and it really angers me that you have bad political actors who want to capitalize on the rhetoric of black death in order to perpetuate it. So you have some unions, police unions, who are completely against interrupters because they don't want the money to go. They want it to go to their union and not necessarily to go to young people they consider to be, quote unquote, people who are returning citizens. And it's really frustrating because we are out here on the South Side doing the work and there are those who are in power that continue to fight against sensible actions that can save the lives of young people when we come back more with our guest reverend dr otis moss iii author of dancing in the darkness spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times after the break Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest. He is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He is the author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Right before the break, I had asked you about this young man, Joseph, at your church who was murdered. And, you know, it, it really struck me when I read about that because it really seemed like not to minimize the other young people who are in your church, but in a way, as you describe him, it almost seems like a favorite son. And the fact that that's who was taken from your community. Not that this is, is the 
issue really, but did they ever find the people or person who killed him? They, they did. And sadly, um, the community knew who, who did it. We didn't get the action on the police end, but that young person who was involved in the shooting was also uh, involved in another shooting. Is anybody ever going to be able to heal that young person or at least to bring him to some awareness of what he did, why he did, and maybe if some way he can become an interrupter too? Well, uh, he's gone from this planet now, um, oh. but, but some of the people... He's gone from this planet now. What happened? Uh, I believe that he, he was shot and killed. Uh, was uh, the person he was he was involved in very young very young uh, individual so then this is like generation after generation so what about the young person who shot and killed him and I uh, now here's, here's here's the good news the good news is that uh, we have uh, a group of interrupters who who work in our neighborhood and they have worked they work diligently around this particular issue to reclaim those who were involved in this skirmish and they have. Uh, so now you have someone who can communicate because one of the, one of the real issues is when people want to know that you're authentic, that I can speak to you freely. And now they have someone who was involved in this skirmish and they can reach the other 10 people who had relationships with this individual. And, and that's the beautiful thing. That's why it's cheaper to invest in interrupters than it is to invest in prison or in police officers. Police officers are responders. Interrupters are just like, you know, people who are doctors. They're, they're, they, they come in before they say, look, I'm checking in on you. I heard what happened in the community last week. And let's sit down and let's see if we can negotiate uh, a, a peace between the two of you. And you all find out that you all have some commonalities here. That's what they do. I mean, they're medicine. Yeah, that's that's all that they do. And they're su incredibly successful. That's the that's the thing that just completely blows me away is we have interrupters who are on a shoestring budget from the state. And when I mean shoestring, I mean shoestring. They do this out of the love of their hearts because they were involved in this and they have an incredibly successful rate. And I was imagining, I said, if they had the budget that the police had and we could deploy just, let's say 5,000 interrupters in a city of 3.5 million, because essentially, if people don't know this, essentially you're talking about a thousand families who perpetuate the highest level of incidents in our city, a thousand. So if we can reach and really work with those who are, are, are perpetuating some of this deep pain, we would see a transformation in, in several years that we would be looking back and say, why didn't we do this before? In closing, I was going to say to you, all right, you know, You've written this book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Um, where do we go from here? You've just given us one example of where we could go from here based on rooted in your own experience. But for those of us who may, at least for today, we don't think we're touched by that experience that you've just referenced, but because one never knows. Um, but still, where do we go from here in terms of our own sanctity and consciousness? I think that in order to, to truly save the democratic project, and I always have to use the word project because it is a project. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not complete. Um, we are going to have to inject and invest in the values, not for our generation, but for the generation not yet born. 
these values mean, of course, you know, civility, compassion, and all of that, and love and justice. But there are practical applications to this. It means, should we all have the ability to be able to, to vote, uh, is one aspect. Another aspect is dealing with economic apartheid and medical apartheid within our communities, dealing with the mental health challenges that we face uh, collectively across this nation, the environmental crisis, and also dealing with the crisis of, of unrestricted markets and capitalism that allow corporations to operate with impunity uh, where they're focused on profit over people. When we have our spiritual values right, we will raise the question about, should we do this though we can? Should agribusiness be able to put out small farmers, especially black farmers throughout Mississippi, who are right now in legal cases saying that we're just trying to stay in business? Should we do this just because we can? doesn't mean we should. Just because it's permissible does not mean it's beneficial. In the first part of our interview, we were talking about the whole concept of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And um, you made the point that people kind of have it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was writing the word forgiveness down and accidentally made misspelled it. And instead of F-O-R-G-I-V-E-N-E-S-S, I wrote F-O-R-E-G-I-V-E-N-E-S-S and began to really think about that slip and forgiveness saying, well, for the sake of forgiveness, maybe that's what forgiveness is, which kind of corresponds to what you were saying. But then I also began to say, look at the F-O-R-E, the pre of it, and saying the forgiveness without having been asked for it mm -hmm. and wondering about that. And it made me think of my conflict about all of this, which is... I do understand what you were speaking about in terms of the forgiveness for one's, for one's own sake, for one's own soul that you spoke about so eloquently. But I wonder about forgiveness in a society that automatically expects it and accepts it as absolution. Mm. And therefore, um, in, a, in this particular society that not only just entitlement kind of thing, but in a society that only really understands retribution for even made-up offenses, where does it come in? Where, where does it come in for us? Well, you graze a great point. The idea that within America, we believe in retribution, but we do not believe in redemption or distributive justice. We want someone punished. We don't want anyone restored. And if we only seek punishment and revenge, then there is no restoration in our society. And so what I am saying, and this is an ancient idea, especially within, within the African tradition of Ubuntu, the idea that my humanity is tied to your humanity. So America's comfortable with absolution when there is a power dynamic where the one who is in power can say, yes. I want to have absolution. America has a real issue with redemption when the hierarchy is broken, 
Because when the hierarchy is broken, it means that there is a circle of people, not a table where someone is at the head. And we all find ourselves in a moment where we want to be restored. So forgiveness is connected to justice and justice is connected to accountability. And accountability is also account uh, connected to reciprocity, respect, and dignity. And it is all wrapped in the idea of love. Of love. Do we have a society that really has a capacity for love, especially right now? Oh, our society um, is not structured around it, but that's why we have poets and prophets and artists and people who are constantly poking at us and demanding that we learn how to flourish and not just how to survive. We have a society of surviving. Even whether you are the wealthiest person or someone who is on the corner, we center ourselves on the idea of the material is what makes us human instead of the deeper values that allow us to flourish. And that means that those who embrace these ideas have to be the trumpets of conscience. They have to be the individuals who are sparking uh, the sacred to, uh, to come forth in, 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 in a human being's spirit. Corporations are not going to do this. Those in power are not going to do this. And the other thing that we really have to, to, to admit, America in itself is also an empire and empires don't like it. Empires don't like it. You mentioned the need, therefore, for our poets and prophets. Mm -hmm. And you've spoken a couple of times during this interview about Dr. King, and I'm going to kind of put him in both categories because <laughs> there's no question. I mean, anybody who heard his voice live heard the poet. We know the prophet, we, but heard the poet, just the language. You mentioned his where do we go from here speech. I want to say to you, as we talk about where do we go from here, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace but one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. When we come back, more with our guest, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, author of Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, and from Dr. Martin Luther King in his own words and voice. After the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with part two of our conversation with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ, the congregation once pastored by the Obama family's minister, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. He is author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. In his book, and our conversation, he mentions Dr. King's Where Do We Go From Here speech. In tribute to Dr. King and his heir, our guest today, Reverend Dr. Moss, here's more of Dr. King's prescient Where Do We Go From Here speech in Atlanta in 1967, less than a year before he was assassinated for his courageous stand against injustice and for the rights of every human being to self-worth. When Dr. King was killed, it was a time when the nation was not only divided, but divided by law, by Jim Crow segregationist law, white supremacist law and disorder. He was rallying Americans across the color bar for a united poor people's campaign. Here he is, 
August 16, 1967. His undeniable timeliness speaks to the challenges we face today. I want to say to you, as we talk about where do we go from here, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation, no Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can totally bring this kind of freedom. The Negro will only be free when he reaches down to the inner depths of his own being and signs with the pen and ink of assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation with a spirit straining toward true self-esteem. The Negro must boldly throw off the manacles of self-abnegation and say to himself and to the world, I am somebody. I am a person. I am a man with dignity and honor. I have a rich and noble history. I have a painful and exploited that history has been. Yes, I was a slave through my foreparents. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm ashamed of the people who were so sinful to make me a slave. Yes. Yes, we must stand up and say, I'm black, but I'm black and beautiful. Tendency to ignore the Negro's contribution to American life and strip him of his personhood is as old as the earliest history books and as contemporary as the morning's newspaper. To upset offset this cultural homicide, the Negro must rise up with an affirmation of his own Olympian manhood. Any movement for the Negro's freedom that overlooks this necessity is only waiting to be buried. As long as the mind is enslaved, the body can never be free. Psychological freedom, a firm sense of self-esteem, is the most powerful weapon against the long night of physical slavery. Even semantics have conspired to make that which is black seem ugly and degrading. In Roger's thesaurus, there are some 120 synonyms for blackness, and at least 60 of them are offensive. Such words as blot, sup, grim, devil, and foul. There are some 134 synonyms for whiteness, and all are favorable, expressed in such words as purity, cleanliness, chastity, and innocence. A white lie is better than a black lie. The most degenerate member of a family is the black sheep. Arthur Davis has suggested that maybe the English language should be reconstructed so that teachers will not be forced to teach the Negro child 60 ways to despise himself and thereby perpetuate his false sense of inferiority and the white child 134 ways to adore himself and thereby perpetuate his false sense of superiority. be reconstructed so that teachers will not be forced to teach the Negro child 60 ways to despise himself and therefore perpetuate his false sense of inferiority and the white child 134 ways to adore himself and thereby perpetuate his false sense of superiority. You spoke to us about Joseph and Joseph's peers left to mourn his death. And I wanted to ask you, for these young people who have been raised, mired in exactly this, you know, this schooling in self-hatred, schooling in self-contempt, I would like you to just give us something that we can then share with them when we have a chance to say something 
what do we need to say? We need to share with them the beauty, the power, the authority, and the heritage that comes from being a person of African descent who has been made beautifully, uh, wonderfully made uh, with the unique and power of melanin in your skin, uh, the way that God has designed you. And then walk them through. We have something known as a rites of passage program where we take young men and what was so tragic about Joseph's death, he was a part of that program where black men walk with young men and share with them the power of who they are, not just from 1619 to the 21st century, but to let them know that when they, they even pick up a Bible, it's a book where you are looking at people of African descent, people of color, that you have to search to find somebody European up in there. That, that even when you are examining ancient history to today, let us look at the Ethiopian tradition and let's look at Ghana and Songhai. Let's look at great Zimbabwe. Let's look at Zambia. Let's look at, let's look at the, the entire Muslim tradition. Uh, let's look at the, the, the beauty across the globe. Even the Olmecs and the Aztecs, or as Ivan Van Sertima would say, that they came before Columbus. That's the teaching that we do. And something rises up in young men when they have been rooted spiritually, meaning that they know that there is an interconnection between every human being and that there is a spark of the sacred upon their very DNA. And when they also know, I've been lied to, the truth is I am a great person of power, authority, and genius. The third thing is, is that we found that when we teach our young men that when you do well in school, you act in black. <laughs> when, when you are brilliant and you are a 4.0, you're acting black. Because your ancestors are the ones who charted the stars, you're acting black when you choose excellence. When you articulate like Hughes, when you have authority uh, like Malcolm, when you have creativity like Du Bois, we share with them Start acting black. <laughs> and that begins with excellence. Thank you. And you've been, you know, so gracious. And, and I'm so grateful that you have gotten us started so beautifully off for the new year here on the show. And so thank you. A listener heard the first part of the show. And he actually wrote me a thank you to you for your boost for the year. And he said that he really needed it because he said, I think my personal struggles, feelings mirror so many others on the progressive left. It just feels like the power structures that exist seem so intractable and the forces of darkness. And, and there we have to be careful because we've just talked about this use of the word dark for malevolence as opposed to dark, simply, I mean, half the day has, is dark and half the day is light. We need both, you know, um, but instead of that, so he, he uses it here though, but he says hatred, racism, misogyny, they appear to be constantly and consistently gaining ground. Not always, he said, am I sure how best to maintain and develop a mindset of hopeful optimism in our present environment. It just feels like so many of the good people out there doing the work are barely holding on by a thread. And so I told him that I would share that with you because he said it best expresses his sentiments, even though it seems to be broad in general, but I know that it is so indicative of so much that so many are feeling. And indeed, while you spoke of spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. 
dancing in the darkness. Um, and, and one other thing I want to say about this particular person who wrote this note, um, he is actually someone that I call a miracle person because he is the descendant of two of the 20th century's worst holocausts. He is a descendant of the Holocaust against Jews. And while his grandfather was a Japanese American fighting in the American, uh, I think he was in the Air Force in World War II, that man's family was interned in a concentration camp for Japanese Americans in California. It is amazing that he is here at all. And the way he uses that is in terms of what he gives to other people. So that's why I decided, yes, let me share his question with you. Essentially, from where we are, it, it is his own charge of where do we go from here. Mm. That's just such a wonderful and, and beautiful question because it grapples with, I believe, <clears throat> what is one of the most eternal and important pieces that we must deal with. And that is the issue of resistance. One of my favorite stories of, of our tradition is the story of a gentleman by the name of Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born an enslaved African in Beaufort, South Carolina. He was believed not to be fully human based upon the framing of the hierarchy of the South. But Robert Smalls, along with 11 other enslaved Africans, including his wife, they decided that they were going to do something that had never been done in American history, that they would steal a Confederate warship. Because they understood something about white supremacy and racism is that white supremacy may be framing the story, but it's also incredibly arrogant and ignorant at the same time. So black people could control the ship. They could clean the ship. They could navigate the ship, but they couldn't be a captain. They just had to be two white overseers. And so they knew that the two white overseers were going out to get drunk and then uh, go to a house of ill repute. And then they brought their children on this ship. They had been memorizing all of the Confederate passcodes so that they could get out of the Charleston Harbor. And it was Robert Smalls who put on his outfit of a Confederate warrior early in the morning before the sun had just come out. They were, I guess, dancing in the darkness <laughs> in many ways. And he gave uh, the, the signal to leave out of the, the harbor. The harbor master just saluted they made their way out, but that was not uh, that was not done because it was a Union ship uh, that had a charge to shoot any Confederate ship. And so, as they were approaching this Union ship, a Union ship trained its guns upon Robert Smalls and everyone, and his wife. My understanding uh, had the idea: find me a white sheet and run it up the flagpole. But as they ran that white sheet up the flagpole, there was a fog that had already settled in, and it looked as if they were about to die as they were trying to become free. But just as it would have, the sun came up. Uh, the light was given. Not hue, because we love to talk about darkness and light as if it is hue, but we're really talking about electromagnetism. That's our ability to be able to see. Love it. Now the Union soldiers could see. And there was Robert Smalls and his entire crew. And they said, we give this ship to Abraham Lincoln for the fight for freedom. These white people could not believe that these black people did such a thing, but it didn't stop there. Robert Smalls then becomes the first officer in black officer in the United States Army. Then stop there. Robert Smalls then moves back to South Carolina and buys the land and house where he was held a slave. And because of his virtues, he allowed the mistress to live on the property, not in the big house. He put her out in a little house out back. Um, and then he said, I need to start schools uh, for enslaved children. Starts four. 
doesn't stop there. He sends his own daughters because he believed that men and women should have an equal education. They go on to get their masters at places such as Oberlin, the University of Pennsylvania, and go over to Europe to study. He then runs for Congress and wins. And he puts in place a policy that we still utilize today, better known as the public school system. Why do I mention Robert Smalls? Because Robert Smalls, when people interviewed him and talked to him about why did you do what you did? How did you believe it? He says evil is always going to be on the move. You just got to have the right song and spirit in your heart to be able to fight against it. And that's what Robert Smalls did. And that's what, what we must do. In the words of our African ancestors, you see, the reason it looks like the hunter is always killing all the lions is because the hunter is telling the story. The day the lion tells the story, you'll notice there are not a whole lot of hunters around. <laughs> so it becomes our responsibility to stop allowing the forces of destruction, the forces that seek to, to marginalize us, the forces of chaos, to tell our story. The person who shared the question, you are a beautiful, marvelous person of a legacy of resistance because you have not only survived, but you have thrived. Part of your resistance will be telling the story. Don't let the hunter tell the story of the lion. Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, thank you so much for being our guest on the show today. My pleasure. My thanks to Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For the full audio and transcript of Dr. King's Where Do We Go From Here speech, links to my guest, his book, Dancing in the Darkness, and his work, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S adams.com in cooperation with wjff radio catskill post-production jason dole and patricio rabio this show is a production of janice adams llc all rights reserved